Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. My name is Tim Coe. And I'm Corey Lee. And today we're interviewing Frank Jones again. Frank, welcome. Thanks, guys. It's been a long week. (laughs) Frank, today we're talking the future of general practice. Uh, But before we do, I thought... Let's let's talk about your journey. Um, a lot of people wouldn't know your full journey. I mean, I've, I've been part of the way. I, I, I was, had the pleasure of uh, training with you a long time ago back in the day. Um, you've had a, a rollicking journey in general practice, and you know, tell us more about it. So, look, I've been uh, very blessed as a general practitioner. I really have done the old manager cradle to grave for general practice. I qualified about years ago now, about 30-odd years ago now, and did my own general practice rotation in the U.K., and uh, never wanted to be a, a city GP and uh, I was offered a, pr- a partnership in a practice in rural UK uh, in a year's time and I saw an ad in the BMJ for the Flying Doctor Service and um, so I, I came out to Australia for a year just to have a look around, that was in 81 and basically never looked back. I loved my time with the RFTS, I did two and a half, three years there and it really is it really does set you up as a multi-skilled GP to work for the RFDS. And I would recommend it for any young doctor. Once you've got done your basic um, medical, surgical, obstetric, anaesthetic, uh, ED stints, um, then you're ready, ready to go rock and roll as, a, as an RFDS doctor. And I loved it. So I did that for two and a half, three years. But there's an awful lot of flying involved. And uh, we had a small baby at that stage. It was, and I was on the air a lot. So it was, it was time to be home. So I started looking around and, and bypassed Perth completely. And uh, and found myself basically in late '83 in Mandra, which is a small coastal town, as you most people would know, and about an hour and a half south of Perth. Its population, when I moved there, was about 10,000. Our local hospital was about 12 kilometres away, where we delivered our babies, gave anaesthetics, and had our inpatients. And gradually, over the last 30 years, the town has grown to now a population of, of 80 plus thousand, and we now have our own hospital. Uh, sad to relate that uh, the hospital's grown so big now it's almost become like a secondary or tertiary hospital with very little general practice involvement and I, and I really am sad to hear that. In fact, I went to the MAC meeting at my local hospital the other day and told the guys that, that real, real life happens outside hospitals. You've got to communicate with general practice. My normal working day for 20 years was doing a ward round at 7 o'clock in the morning looking after my own inpatients, looking after my obstetric patients, and starting surgery at 8.30, and multiple calls in between. So about 15 years ago, we built a a new surgery right next door to the hospital, and uh, all of my partners and four of us at that stage all did GP obstetrics, and it was right next door to the hospital, so you can go back back and forth to labor ward, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, way of life. Um, But... The town has grown, and I understand why the GPs can no longer after look after everything in the hospital. You just can't be everything to everybody. Uh, I also feel that my, the new generation of doctors, my general practice trainees, are not particularly interested in, in going into the hospital as I do, as I did. Um, I think there is. I mean, I think there's such a, a, a gap in our health system um, for community hospitals. It has always bemused me that you do all your medical training and then you enter general practice training and then day one of your general practice training, for some unknown reason, you are no longer qualified to look after your cellulitis or your pneumonias or your TIAs in your local community hospital. I mean, if we had that sort of situation, I'm not saying it happens everywhere in a city, but if we had that situation, you know, you can look after your patient, you know when you admit them, you can look after them in there, and you know what drugs and, and treatments have been done at, in, as an inpatient. 
So to me, it's always been a crazy, crazy system that we have this false divide between our community hospitals and general practice. So in a nutshell, that's been my journey. I've been very privileged to do it. You know, walking from a, someone who's dying in my palliative care ward to delivering a baby, it does not get any more humbling or better than that. Right. Thanks, Frank. So, Frank, you're still involved in teaching and mentoring registrars. Can you tell me how optimistic do you feel for your trainees like me who are just starting their general practice journey? Look, I'm very optimistic. I, I mean, as uh, I mentioned in last week's podcast, general practice and primary care is, is undoubtedly the way of the future. We cannot keep pouring dollars and dollars down our expensive but necessary hospital system. So I think the future is bright for um, general practice. Um, I think there are obviously some challenges, specifically fiscal at the moment. Um, I think we also have to have a good look at ourselves as well as GPs and GP trainees. Um, you know, it, it's you don't go into general practice because it's nine to five. Yes, you can have, you can actually have rosters and things, but it's actually not nine to five. So doing that extra house call on the way home, it just amazing difference it makes to people's lives. So I think that one of the things that we probably need to start thinking about really seriously in general practice, yes, we've got Gen Y coming through, we probably want to do part-time work, and we've also got a, a large female cohort, obviously. We've got to get better at share care and handovers. Now, hospital colleagues do it really well. They hand over really well. We do have, Our handovers in general practice are really very, very poor. So I think, yes, I think my generation of doctor worked too hard and too, the hours were onerous and crazy. Um, we've swung the other way now we've got to get back to this middle road here somehow and we've got to somehow balance this continuity of care that we can provide for our patients because that is the special gift of general practice otherwise we're just going to be doing episodic care like like casualty and we're not ED doctors we are primary care doctors we provide contextual stuff continuity uh, and also comprehensive care and that's what we do and that's what differentiates us from every other speciality Mm, very wise words Frank, um, kind of leads into our next question. What do you see general practice looking like in 10 years' time? Yeah, look, Tim, that's a really good question. I, mean, I think we'll be doing a lot of, a lot of the same kind of stuff. I mean, the patients ain't going to change. Mm-hmm. Patients are actually going to get more complicated. Patient demand is going to increase. Uh, um, there's going to be more polypharmacy. Uh, there's going to be more investigations available to us. We really have to be expert scientists as well as uh, personal doctors for people. Um, I, I think the mode of practice that we will be doing, we'll still be consulting in our own, but we'll be doing a lot more use of IT. Uh, I suspect in five, ten years' time, there'll be an hour's worth of video, conf- video consults with my patients at home, uh, monitoring them at home, and specifically there'll be video consults with my nursing home patients. And that's a huge, that is a huge gap that general practice is not really looking after very well at the moment. These patients in, in aged care, and as I say, my career has changed from a GP obstetrician to ED to, to now doing lots of aged care just because of my uh, age cohort. These patients are extraordinarily challenging, not, not just because their life stories are interesting, because they are and they do deserve proper care. They are incredibly challenging medically these days because they've come through the cancers, they've come through the heart attacks, they've had their diabetes for 25 years, they're still on 15 drugs. They're now frail at 88, 89, 90. They're still on a statin. They're still on an antidepressant or whatever it may well be. Deprescribing is general practice country. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, a major technical and human challenge for general practice. It's a huge gap. 
And we, we're going into unknown territory with these things, aren't we? There's no te- you can't look this one up in a textbook or, or anything like that. You well, learn I, as you go. Yeah, I often say GPs don't need guidelines; they need guidance. Yeah. And I think uh, guidelines are useful. You can have a look at them, but guidance is really important. I think having good senior mentors around people with experience that that can guide young doctors and, and try and help them to 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 look after someone who's got heart failure. I mean, how often should you do a creatinine on someone who's got heart failure? And there are no guidelines. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we actually do it because we think it's probably the right time to do it, but there are no guidelines for such things. So uh, hospital doctors test everything. Yeah, all the time. Again, <laughs> again, I teach my registrars, it's much, much, much easier not to do a test or investigation than to do it. A monkey can do a test. It's actually having that knowledge and confidence of when not to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'd just like to segue into a bit of a different topic. I understand you're starting a new leadership program in the college. Can you tell us more about it? Okay, so um, I think we need leaders in the profession. Uh, my story is that I first became involved at the local hospital level in the Medical Advisory Committee. I knew nothing about committee work. But I've always had the philosophy that watching general practice from within and without, that if GPs are not at the table, decisions are made about general practice and about patient care. We have to be at the table. So I've kind of learned uh, by mistakes and over the years and being on various committees. I remember the first meeting I chaired for the Medical Advisory Committee at Peel District Hospital. I had no idea. I remember going home and look, and there was no computers. I'm getting a book out of the library and saying, how do you chair a meeting? So it's not about chairing committees and stuff like that. So leaders is, is about... Um, find people who are interested in this. Uh, it's about um, being self-reflective. It's about giving them the skills about having a vision of what they actually want if they, if they are going to aspire to be leaders. It's about understanding strategy. Strategy is really, really important. It's really about having empathy and being able to listen to other people. One of the great strengths of a leader, I believe, is if you actually have an idea yourself, is letting other people own that idea and then they think they've owned it and they think that you know everything's going well. So I think that's a real strength of leadership if you can actually do that. I mean, there's lots of paradigms that we're going to be talking to people. So we're hoping to have 15 young, uh, and maybe not so young, uh, doctors applying to be um, in this leadership program. It's going to be structured. Um, they're going to have to make a commitment over the next 12 months period. We're also going to match them with senior doctors who will be their mentors. And those mentors will meet with those mentors telecom, telecom, tele, by telephone, obviously, once a month or so. There'll be some, some sort of syllabus. There'll be a little bit of curriculum. Um, and, I, look, I'm really optimistic. I really believe we've got to understand what leadership means. Uh, I think we've got, if we're going to change the politicians' point of view, we've actually got to have those skills to do those things. Mm, that sounds really interesting, Frank. I'm sure you're going to get lots of people interested. Uh, you know, what a great move. And, you know, I think you're right. It's, it's developing the, that next group of people who can have the skills that they're going to need to, to lead you know, our profession. So speaking of young GPs, um, you know, say you're a, a, a new registrar or you've just got your fellowship and you're looking around for a practice, what do you reckon a, a, a young GP should be looking for in a practice when, when they're... Yeah, it's always a difficult question. I mean, first of all, you could decide what, where you want to live yourself, I guess. And then, I, and and your partner and your family have got to be happy where you're living. Uh, also, professionally, you've got to be comfortable where you're going to be doing what sort of work you're going to be doing. Because if you're miserable professionally, and vice versa, it doesn't work. So it's kind of getting that that mix right. 
Um, I would strongly uh, advocate for people to go and have a look at a practice very closely, not just to fit the financial stuff, but maybe work there for six to 12 months and see if it works out and have that in your contract. You're gonna do that to start with. Uh, I would also strongly advocate that the practice they go to um, encourages them to have um, not just general skills, but specific interests, interests as well. Because I think in this 21st century, seeing chronic disease for 10 hours a day, five days a week is really, really hard jacker. And one of the uh, things I believe that causes, that helps to provide resilience in, in doctors is that they actually have to uh, diversify their skills. And I've done that all through my professional life, and I'm sure that's actually what's kept me a more resilient doctor. So, look, it's, it's going to be a hard call. I mean, it's very much individual, of course, um, whether you want to be a city-based GP, regional or, or rural. Um, but you don't have to be there forever, you know, either. I mean, my gen, I, you know, I never planned to stay in Mandra forever. It just, it's kind of a nice town, and I kind of like it. Um, but obviously many people move on. And finally, Frank, I know you have the answer to this, so I'm quite interested. When do you think the MBS freeze will be lifted? That's a great question, um, and, I, and I really wish I had an answer. Look, I think that it, it's, the, I think one of the disappointing things during my presidency, I would say, uh, and not because the college didn't do the right thing, because I think the good GP did all the right things, and, and, and we've, we've told government that what a bad policy it is and, and the impact it has on patients and quality patient care. Um, I think we have to think a bit more strategically about this government. From the, at this, this particular government, they're not going to change their way of thinking. So uh, I think we have to really have a really good think, try and think outside the circle, um, how the college can help our members to get through this. I mean, there are opportunities within general practice, within the bulk billing cycle to, to make your business better, but it's not going to be sustainable, and that's the problem we have. There's no country in the world that's got a perfect uh, primary health care system. We've got a pretty damn good one here in Australia, but I think the government needs to understand that you have to invest in the health of the nation, otherwise there is no wealth. Wise words, Frank. Um, thanks, Frank. You're, you're a pleasure to talk to. You're a Welshman who's not afraid to say hard yakka, so I admire that. <laughs> I've also admired your presidency, and I've said it before, congratulations. Wonderful term as president, and you've left the organisation in great shape. Uh, you know, good luck to you going forward. Okay, thanks, guys. Nice talking to you. Cheers. And that's the good GP.